Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us. We are so glad you're here with us. We have another collection of fantastic articles to talk to you about today from damninteresting.com. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First First link. link. This one comes from the Associated Press at The Guardian. Man requests sword fight with ex-wife and lawyer to settle legal dispute. Nice. Mm, (laughs) It's 2020 and some things are timeless. Like Like sword fighting. Like dueling. So (laughs) this is a 40-year-old from Paola, Kansas named David Ostrom. He asked an Iowa judge for trial by combat and he asked for it to take place in 12 weeks. So he had actually got some time to secure the Japanese samurai swords to make this a very authentic and, you know, original sort of experience. Because if you're going to do it, you got to do do it right. right. Exactly right. So, you know, he's got this all planned out. He kind of put the work in. Essentially, in a January 3rd court filing, he said that his ex-wife, Bridget Ostrom, quote, destroyed him legally. So, of course, when that happens, you know, litigation is huge in this country. Divorces are really (laughs) contested. Sometimes you just need a samurai sword. You got to fall back on the basics. Exactly right. And so this was like, was this meant to be a sword fight to the death or was it just like oh i've i've dominated you therefore i get custody of the kids you know that's not clear um (laughs) what exactly he wanted well i mean the attorney had in his legal response requesting this to be denied said that because a duel could end in death quote, such ramifications likely outweigh those of property tax and custody issues. So but, so he actually had to address it, though. The lawyer had to be like, no, we're going to dismiss this because here's my legal reasoning right. for why this is Only insane. the judge can dismiss it. And he's not issuing a decision anytime soon because the judge cited irregularities with both sides' motions and responses. I guess they're all acting the fool. And the yeah. judge is like... I'm going to withhold my what is sure to be a scathing dressing down of right. the entire request. But the person who filed this basically said trial by combat has never been explicitly banned or restricted as a right in the United States. It varies by state. So according to Wikipedia, the last known duel in the U.S. was known as the Broderick Terry duel. It happened in 1859 and it was regarding slavery. But so wait, so what they were arguing, like the law wasn't going to be changed based on this duel. What were they? It was just a personal matter. I think so. I mean, that's sort of been the tradition with duels, right? Like They're very personal. They're, yeah. they're, it's, I mean, you're fighting <laughs> to the death. It's usually going to be something of a highly inflamed, passionate nature, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what happened was after that duel, the last known duel in the United States, both public opinion and legislation started to turn against dueling, but not all states outright ban it. For example, in Kentucky, to this day, if you are sworn into service as a public official, you must declare under oath that you have never participated, acted as a second in, or otherwise had anything to do with a duel. That's part of the swearing-in process part is of just sw- mentioning, by the way, I don't participate in these types of activities. Well, and in Kentucky, I think it, Appalachia is very famous for having, like, blood feuds and family lines that sure. last generations and generations. So it's... I, I didn't actually Google David Ostrom, but I certainly had a, a, a nice 
nice visual. I think it involved a fedora. I have to say, I do think it's a little weird that he doesn't own the swords already, because that's the picture I'm getting as well, as someone who has swords on his mantle. Like, why would you, why would this even occur to you if you were not someone who had these swords hanging on your Exactly. Wall? If you're going to duel, pick something you're already strong in. My guess is this person really hasn't thought through a whole bunch when it comes to his life and his choices. It seems like they're both kind of a little bit off the rails and yeah. just sort of throwing motions left and right yeah, and seeing what yeah. happens. Next link. Next link. Well, this one is uh, also a little bit strange. The Leech's Journey. It's from Bradley Alf of Atlas Obscura. So we sort of, I think, have this conscious awareness that leeches are still used today. You know, obviously they were very big in the 18th century for just generic bloodletting, but it turns out they are actually quite good at removing blood and they still use them in digit reattachment. If you lose a finger, they sew it back on. They don't know if it's going to stay on or not. Mm -hmm. There's sort of this gamble of maybe it'll reattach, maybe it won't. And one of the big problems, apparently, is that arteries are big and heal really fast and veins are tiny and heal slower. Mm -hmm. And so your artery reestablishes itself and the blood starts flowing into the finger, but the veins can't pull the blood out. So you get swollen, sausagey, dead right. blood finger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the blood sits there and kind of spoils, I guess. Yeah. You can get sepsis, right? Yeah. Blood poisoning. Yeah. And so they use leeches now in medical hospitals where the doctor will prescribe leeches and put them on the finger. And they said they have to do it for about five or six days after the finger is reattached uh -huh. to sort of drain the old blood out constantly mm -hmm. until the veins heal. And then it can kind of reestablish its own circulation cycle. And it works. How can a severed digit heal itself without attachment to the body? No, no. It's after it's attached. I see. I they, see. they take the finger off of, I mean, you when you come in with a finger, that you you got to get it right back on as yeah. fast as possible. Right, right. And so they quick sew it back on. And then there's sort of maybe a little bit of a waiting period to see, is this going to even begin to heal. Right, right. If it starts to heal, then within a day or two, you start to get this blood cycle problem. And so then the doctor will say, okay, we've got step one. The arteries are working. Now we got to make sure that we give it time for the veins. Got and it. so they, they write a prescription. And this article is more about the, where they get the leeches. You know, you can't just send someone out into a bog oh, no, to get a leech. No. And so there's labs where they grow them. And the main lab that supplies leeches for most of the world is called Biofarm. It's in Wales. And they maintain a colony of about 30,000 leeches at all times. <laughs> and then there's a couple of like distributors. So there's a distributor in America right. where they about every six weeks they ship a thousand leeches. And these things, I mean, when you need them, you need them fast. Yeah, yeah. And so they have people who are on leech duty. Like, <laughs> and it's, it's if the emergency call comes in at two in the morning, pack those suckers up, get them on an overnight flight, get them to the hospital right away. Yes. And it's unfortunate for the leeches because they don't, uh, they don't survive. I mean, they, they, they do their job. They drain once. And then they are uh, humanely euthanized and destroyed because oh. they're at that point, they're medical waste. They're basically like a dirty needle. Yeah, yeah. You cannot use a leech more than once. They note that leeches are actually endangered because of overfishing, overcollection in the 18th century when they were really big. Doctors yeah. would say, put 90 leeches on you and that'll yeah. cure your... Well, bloodletting yeah. was the solution for every ailment right. back then. So they, they were really interested in gathering as many leeches as possible. And their collection methods they talk about, they had uh, leech boys in the 18th century who would just literally wade into the with their bare legs, come back out and pluck all the leeches off. And that was how they got them. Wow. Nowadays, they let them grow in the tank. But they talk about, you know, it's the, the way they work generally is they get a really big meal about once a year and they can swell to like three or four times their size. And then they sink to the bottom of the river or wherever they are and just sort of hibernate for about a year before it's time to wake up and, and feed again. And that's a really tough cycle to maintain yeah. when you suddenly need them and they need to be hungry. Hence the farm. Yeah. So they talk about at the farm how they feed them like 
little tiny bits and they also make them exercise. They said the way you make a leech exercise is if it's hungry and it's at one end of the tank, you put your arm in the water and it swims over to your arm and then you pull your arm out real quick and it's uh, you just made them do a lap. (laughs) So it's like a food fake out to get them excited. And they basically have them on a diet that mimics sort of this long-term fasting that they do in nature. Right. They give them just tiny little bits to kind of keep them permanently hungry. And then they ship them off and that's and they get their one really good meal. They yeah. die happy. <laughs> but the leech is actually, it's a very interesting creature. Like evolutionarily, it doesn't make a lot of sense at all. They have two hearts, two circulatory systems, five pairs of eyes, 32 brains, 10 stomachs, and 18 testicles. Whoa! And, and that's in all of them because they're hermaphrodites. And I think it's, it's just sort of a redundancy thing. I think, you know, when they talk about 32 brains, it's really more like they have a nervous system mm. that just sort of extends from tip to tip. And there's little nodes and they're saying, oh, that's the brain. But also mm. that's the brain. Um, but more hearts than we do. Yeah. And it, I mean. And two whole circulatory systems. I mean, it. Well, they are, you know, blood creatures. So that almost kind of follows, I guess. I mean, I guess that would be digestive. Yeah. One's digestive just... and one's circulatory. They're, I don't know. They're how sophisticated. Yeah. They're very interesting creatures. And they have that classic three jawed mouth. So when they uh-huh. bite, they leave. They have a picture in the article of a, of a, a leech wound. That's like a, it's a little three lined oh. marker that somehow that's the that's the classic bite of the oh. leech. <laughs> I, I, by the way, love this uh, name for the old collectors of leeches as leech boys. Like I'm pretty sure I dated a few of those. Right. <laughs> and, well, and it fits in with like the classic masculine It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to just wait in there. It's going to hurt, but I don't care. Well, and they say, actually, for the most part, it doesn't hurt. The bite itself is completely painless. Mm -hmm. When you pull them off before they're ready, (laughs) that can be a problem. But once they're full, they drop off themselves. Are they like mosquitoes where they secrete something in the bite that acts as a local anesthetic? Mm -hmm. And they also have something else. They said they have an anticoagulant in their spit so that it actually... Even once it drops off, the wound continues to bleed freely for a long time afterwards, which they said is good in the case of these reattached digits. You want that to kind of help. And they said they could give systemic, you know, medical anticoagulants, but then it would be in your whole system and you got So it's a local. Yeah, local. And apparently you can get them yourself. 12 leeches will run you about 50 bucks. You know, that's pretty affordable, all yeah. things considered. I mean, there's shipping to consider, but, you know. <laughs> Have you ever been bitten by a leech or experiences? Uh, no. <laughs> no, I try to stay out of swampy bogs. That's yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a a local festival that I go to here in Central Texas, and the river that is kind of on the property is known to have leeches on occasion. Oh, yeah? Sometimes if you just kind of sit at the bottom and the water hasn't been flowing very much, people come out of the water with With leeches leeches on them. Yeah. I imagine that they panic. I mean, it's it's not a problem. They're not going to take too much blood. They're not going to hurt you. It's just, you know, when you're in that festival mindset, waddle out with leeches (laughs) at a... Certainly gets tongues wagging. It's a damper on the mood. That's right. That's right. (laughs) All right. Well, next link. Next Next link. link. So, you know, I'm a big fan of all of these like ancient medieval kind of like beauty recipes and like crazy beauty fads that have happened through history. Well, Megan Racklin at Lit Hub has an article before beauty vlogging, there was Renaissance Book of Secrets. So I'm going to read you a recipe from one of these books of secrets. So these were like published for women like at the time? Exactly right. Yeah, they were basically published. uh, Well, this particular recipe comes from a 1561 book of secrets entitled The Secrets of Lady Isabella Cortese. And this may have only been a pen name, right? Apparently, Cortese is an anagram of secreto. But her book went into an impressive seven printings at a time where printing was still really young. She's an influencer. She was big. Exactly. An ancient influencer. Um, These 
these were like very wildly popular. It was a new literary genre during the Italian Renaissance, in part because they were written in vernacular Italian. So they were basically instructing an increasingly literate public in the pursuit of alchemy. So there was a really hard tie-in with alchemy, which still kind of retained some of the magic and mysticism while purporting to be very scientific, right? Well, and that kind of connects as well to these ideas of like, you know, the mystery of beauty. You know, how do you explain why something is beautiful? It almost has this kind of mystical nature to it. Exactly. And that's something that's going to kind of change over time. Mm -hmm. So during this time, the Renaissance era feminine ideal was smoother skin, lighter hair. Sounds familiar. Yeah. Smaller breasts. Yeah, see, that that's one of those things they go back and forth on. Yeah, and so having alchemical instructions promised wealth or the illusion of wealth, there's a really easy tie to how beauty kind of works in with that, right? Mm -hmm. But let me, this recipe is just flat out wild. Okay. Okay. So first of all, you take two pigeons with white feathers mm -hmm. and feed them on pine nuts for eight or rather 15 days. That's an investment. Oh, like it, that, oh it you got to care for animals for two weeks oh, before yeah. you even get started. And none of these dark feathered pigeons, thank oh, you. Oh, no. We need white feathered pigeons. Then you butcher them and you throw away the head, feet and guts. Put the rest in an alembic, which is kind of a little ancient Arabic beaker, basically. Okay. And you distill it with half a loaf of sweetened bread four ounces of true silver, three gold ducats, four heels of white bread that has been left to soften in goat's milk for six days, and then you distill all of this over a low heat, and it will produce a most perfect water to give color to a pale complexion. So <laughs> it's a bunch of rotted food <laughs> and alcohol and a dead bird. Yeah. And, and some metal. Yeah. And you're rubbing that on your face. Yeah. All right. That's I cool. mean, if you think about it, like, so for example, silver is an antimicrobial mm -hmm. and the goat's milk would have been full of probiotics. Right. But then if you're heating it, you probably are killing the probiotics. So really you're it only It says talking... low heat. Oh, so maybe they're, yeah. you're just fermenting it. it possibly. Which yeah. actually could help your skin if you have these skin infections. Truly. This stuff works. I'm getting myself a couple <laughs> of white doves. That's the <laughs> pigeons, pigeons. Right. And, and if this is going to give color to a pale complexion, there may be other things going at play there, like inflammation. Like yeah, it's sort of drawing the blood to the surface. Exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> if you've given yourself an infection, it's going right. to give you those rosy cheeks. I mean, we've, you know, women have been both made to do and happily undertaking of their own accord all kinds of crazy things to adhere to beauty standards, which shift and change over time, which are completely subjective, but are inextricably part of a source of power. You know, for a people who are disempowered just throughout history. Absolutely. Right? Well, and it definitely makes sense where if you restrict someone to your entire job is to be beautiful. That's it. All you can do is be the most beautiful adornment for your husband's yep. arm that you can be. Yep. Then you are going to start putting in just absurd amounts of effort to figuring out what are the secrets? How yeah. can I be the one thing I'm allowed to be? Exactly. And at this time, alchemy is cutting edge stuff. Yeah. I mean, it has not been poo-pooed at all. At They're still time. drinking mercury going, this is good for you. <laughs> exactly. Um, at one point in the book, the author says something like, don't look too much into the why. It, it's not a secret if you question. reveal it. Exactly. <laughs> like if you have to reveal the secret, it loses some of its potency. So, you know, don't 
don't look into it too much, but do your own experimentation. Right. Have faith. Yeah. Just believe that your skin will be beautiful. Exactly Which, right. frankly, a lot of beauty is confidence. So if you believe uh, that it works, it does work. Absolutely. There are true scientific studies that say if you fake a smile, if you just, you know, wrench, not wrench, but if you gently enhance your face into turning the corners of your mouth up periodically, mm-hmm. it will improve your mood. So that, you know, fake it till you make it, confidence, everything else. It is a kind of alchemy, is it not? That's right. It works. <laughs> so fundamentally, the process works <laughs> is what we're concluding. And get yourself a pigeon. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. White ones only. That's right. <laughs> Racism endures. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, we have a bit of an animal theme going today, apparently. So we obviously know that there are a lot of species on this earth that we don't know about. Mm-hmm. How can you know, needle in a haystack, you go into the Amazon and there's thousands and thousands of creatures. Mm-hmm. How are you going to find that one spider? Mm-hmm. And there's sort of a whole philosophy that says, instead of going out and trying to find these creatures, let's try to bring them to us. So one of the scientists doing this is Dr. Craig McLean. He wanted to know what sort of creatures lived at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico that might, for example, eat alligators. It's so specific. (laughs) It is. He's a little bit of an interesting fellow. Um, But basically, they said, you know, anything that dies and goes to the bottom, there has to be something that has filled that evolutionary niche to eat that creature. Mm. They know, for example, that when a whale dies and falls to the bottom, there's specific creatures that come and eat the Mm -hmm. dead carcass. But maybe, he reasoned, there are different creatures that come out for different types of carcasses because all Mm -hmm. of these animals are very, very specialized at the bottom of the ocean. You have to be Mm -hmm. because there's no light. You have to be high pressure. Yeah. Yeah. And so he and his team secured three dead alligators and uh, lowered them on a benthic elevator, which they later reveal is basically a really long rope. (laughs) (laughs) They lowered them with a weight down to specific points in the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico in three different places. And then they sent the little undersea drone down there with the light to kind of see what showed up a few days later as the as time went on. And it turns out lots of species that they had not ever documented before. The first one that they dropped, within a day, the carcass was swarming with giant isopods, which are like, so, okay, you know roly polies? Yes. Do you call them roly polies? I do, yeah. See, I was, grow- I was taught to call them doodle bugs. Aww. And I have never heard anyone else recognize that term. I wonder if that's regional. I, it could be. My mom grew up in Houston. And I, th- I don't know if, if that was, maybe she was making it up. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I never learned them as pill bugs or roly polies. I learned them as doodle bugs. But these ones are giant. They're, you know, obviously underwater, mm. so they're different. But they're related and they're about the size of a football. Whoa. And this, the, the article here on uh, New York Times from Asher Elbine has a video that they took with this little undersea thing. And it's cool. It's like all these bugs crawling over an alligator. You know, one of the things they were wondering is, oh, well, the alligator has a really tough hide. Mm -hmm. It's not like the soft flesh of a whale. Right. What's going to possibly be able to chew through? Well, these things apparently just chomp right on through. They don't have a problem with it at all. They just munched through the armor and they ate the whole thing. And within 51 days, one of the carcasses was completely stripped free. And that led to another discovery where they found these uh, bone worms. They're called Osidax zombie worms. Yeah. And they come and they only eat bone. And it's, it's sort of a very unique digestive system that they have. And they are, they are known, there are other species of Osidax that are known to eat whale bones and other things. But this is apparently somewhat different and counts as a different species. So that's two species that they've discovered. And then one of their alligators, unfortunately, they came back eight days later and it was just gone. The weight had been dragged about 30 feet to the side. The mm. rope was severed. And they said, realistically, we think the only thing that could have gotten it was a Greenland shark. Because that's the only thing that we know of uh-huh. that is big enough. And I'm like, yeah, but you have just said you discovered two new species. 
from the other two alligators, you don't know what dragged that thing it off. It may not have been very large. It may have been a swarming army of something else. That's where they true. Have, you know, mobility and can carry it through. Teamwork makes the dream work. <laughs> More like the nightmare, am I right? right? But uh, anyway, they do have a really fantastic video. And it was it was just a very cool way of thinking about bring them to us. Yeah. Don't go to the bottom of the ocean yeah. and just drive around looking for something. Yeah. You can destroy habitat. You can, you know, put them into hiding. That makes a great deal yeah. of sense. And, and nothing says, come here, come here, come here, like a big dead animal. That's right? right. Well, and like, for example, they said there were a lot of hoops they had to jump through because alligators are protected in Louisiana. Mm. They're not endangered, but they basically said we need people to stop going out being... Rednecks. Rednecks <laughs> killing alligators yeah, for fun. Yeah. So you're not allowed to kill an alligator. So he had to work with the government to get three properly euthanized alligators. Aww. And I don't know where they came from. Aww. but <laughs> they, uh, they also had not been certain that alligators go that far out in the ocean and die and drop that deep. So now they've also proven that alligators must go out farther than oh. up on the coastline because if there's something ready to eat it right away mm -hmm. they must have evolved in tandem with the alligators falling down to the bottom of the gulf so interesting they venture farther out than we know they've got buddies down there we didn't know about <laughs> there's just a whole wild world under there <laughs> so. if you believe james cameron ancient aliens as well Oh, well, that might have been what took off the uh, the second That's alligator. Right. <laughs> Greenland shark, code for ancient alien. That's right. <laughs> All right, next link. Next, next link. link. You know, let's keep jamming on these animals. I'm, I'm going to take a little bit of a turn here because we're going to be talking about an animated animal. Okay. This is from the Thigh Master at Decider. Fritz the Cat, the infamous X-rated cartoon that grossed $90 million, is now on Amazon Prime. I have never heard of this. What is Fritz the Cat? Oh, this is an infamous... It was the first X-rated animated film. Okay. So Ralph Bakshi, I think he did uh, heavy metal. He did like a lot of these. He's probably the, the Westerner who's best known as trying to get animation focused more at an adult audience. Because, you know, for most of our American culture... Cartoons are for kids, right? Sure, yeah. yeah. And there's been a big resurgence in recent years, but there was, I must imagine there must have been a turning point, and this guy was it? it he was, I think, probably the most well-known to really push this and seeing animation as a way to push the envelope to talk about things or do subject matter that, you know, Disney wouldn't touch. I mean, in cultures like Japan, especially things like anime and manga, cartoons mm -hmm. have almost always been for all ages. I mean, right. There was never that delineation. Exactly. But for some reason here in America, we've really kind of kept it as a kiddie format. But Ralph Bakshi was just, he was ready to kind of push the envelope with this. So he started off pretty typical as an animator doing morning cartoons like Terry Toon's Deputy Dog. And then he started <laughs> doing his own like a la carte kind of things. He wanted to take animation to another level, so he and his producing partner found a way to option the, quote, obscene labeled underground comic strip Fritz the Cat. So this was done by Robert Crumb. Are you familiar with any of his work? Oh, C-R-U-M-B. Yes. I have heard of him. Yep. So this, it was a comic first. Yes. And he said, let's make a full length version. That's exactly right. And Crumb actually never wanted to do this. It was his wife who had power of attorney that greenlit the project. And apparently after the film wow. came out, Crumb was so unhappy with it, he actually killed off the character of Fritz the Cat in one of his other comics and had some digs at Ralph Bakashi and his other producer just to kind of exercise this demon. So his wife had power of attorney. Was he just... 
just very old? I mean, what was the why would she have power of attorney over his work? I don't know. It doesn't mention in the article whether he was disabled. He was obviously not dead at the point. It may have just been that like having power of attorney is you're the one who is able to speak for me in my legal matters. I don't want to deal with it. Right. You're the business arm. Exactly. So she may have just made an executive business decision and says, listen, I'm legally able to do this. I have power of attorney. So I'm going to make it happen. We're doing the thing. Maybe she won the right to his work in a duel over their divorce. (laughs) (laughs) The film went through all kinds of issues to try to get funded. Nobody wanted to do the film. Oh, yeah. You wouldn't want to be attached to that project. No. I mean, it was turned down all over Hollywood. It was greeted by a full page ad in Variety from about 50 well-known Hollywood animators who told me I was destroying the Disney image and should go home. Oh, no. So, I mean, nobody wants to make this done. But finally, they get a little tiny budget from Warner Brothers. They start doing this. and from, there's Wait, from Warner Brothers? From Warner Not Brothers. Not like some indie publisher. They no. said, okay, we'll fund this. But with a tiny budget, they went ahead and started going through it. But when the suits at Warner took one look at an early completed sequence, they wanted the sex and drugs toned down. <laughs> and when the director said no, they pulled out from the project. Yeah, they they, they got tricked. They didn't know what they were funding at first. I mean, and this was, I mean, this was being made in the early 70s and it was really kind of capping the culture of the end of the 60s, which just had a lot of sex, a lot of drugs, a lot of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Um, they basically used wild sound recordings of people talking in the streets of New York, using actual photos of New Whoa. York as background sound. I mean, this is gritty, 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 kind of smutty, smutty, smutty at the same time, too. And yet high art. I'm (laughs) debatable, but it's available on Amazon Prime if you want to go ahead and give it a shot and see what it's about. So he really, I mean... Yes, it was really sensational, but the aim of this director, he really wanted to use this as like a satirical vehicle to talk about things in society, right? He laid the groundwork for things like South Park, The Simpsons, you Mm -hmm. know, things that are definitely more adult, but using this, what we understand to be a juvenile media format to do so. So it wasn't just a straight up porn. It was really more of just like this satirical, raunchy, political, like off the wall, dark humor kind of thing. I'll be honest, I haven't seen it yet. (laughs) It might be porn. Um, (laughs) This is what it says of the film itself. On the surface, it remains shamelessly dirty and crude. Seeing a college-aged hepcat kitty fondle, bang, and blotho his way through life to find some sort of consciousness. It's got, uh, the article has like a still <laughs> image from the movie, which is four anthrop, and they're all animals. They're all anthropomorphized. Right. It's four of them in a bathtub with bits blurred out, like of the animation. Right, this is a shot in the film. That's... I mean, it was, it got an X rating from the MPAA. Sure, I mean, it's definitely going to be pornographic at that point it doesn't and not just pornographic but a lot of drug use i think they talk about you've got some racist caricatures of black crows smoking dope you've got some neo-nazi bunnies doing smack and a horse urinating on hippies. So they just went all out. They I said, mean, we're going to touch on everything. We're going to make sure. It was a reflection of the 60s and early 70s. Yeah. We only have ourselves to blame. Right? Uh, well, not me. I wasn't alive. But <laughs> I will not take credit. That's right. We only kind of uphold the uh, legacy as a generation later. But, right. you know, definitely not as wild as our parents were. <laughs> so basically what happened is after Warner Brothers pulled out of funding... They found uh, a home in the distributor Cinemation Industries, and they specialized in exploitation and X-rated films. 
Long story short, this 700,000 budgeted film went on to rake in $90 million at the box office. Because that's how all these projects are when it's like, yeah, 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 it's too awful for anybody to make. But if you make it, they will come. High risk, high reward. And part of it is because Midnight Cowboy, which was one of the famous X-rated films that actually won three Academy Awards, Mm -hmm. um, that came out in 1969. So there was at least like a precedent being set that like, hey, an X-rated film could be worth watching and because it was an animation and nobody had done anything like that before i'm sure there was a novelty aspect to it as well so super salacious it's available for rent on amazon prime for so now basically amazon's gotten the rights to it is the thing is there and now you can go and see it yeah so instead of having to hunt down like an old you know sixth generation copy of a vhs VHS mail through (laughs) exactly you can stream it in all of its grainy and I mean that in all sense of the word, <laughs> rainy glory on Amazon Prime for three ninety nine. Wow. I bet they make a lot of money off of it. I'm I'm, I'm tempted to go see it. Like I just <laughs> yeah. I wanna find out what exactly constituted an X-rated cartoon in the 60s. Because I'm a big fan of like, you know, Rick and Morty and South Park and yeah. a, the whole Adult Swim lineup. Like I'm a I like that combination of edgy but also animated. Like there's a real sweet spot, I think, yeah. in connecting with that part of you that likes wandering into bogs and getting leeches stuck on you. It's that it's it's that youthful, yeah, shocking but also funny, but also pushing the norms. Yeah. I think there's definitely more overlap than a lot of people want to admit. I think you're right. I, I'd be curious and... to see if that sort of intellectual legacy is upheld in what was essentially the first foray into this. Type right. Of it format. might not stand up very well, but, but it, it helped for what came after. Exactly. Could be worth the shot. Just make sure the kids are in bed. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. So. Last April, the Notre Dame Cathedral burned. It was very sad. Everybody immediately donated a lot of money to help rebuild it. Those efforts are ongoing. But one of the things that has come out of that, a sort of silver lining to the very dark cloud, was that they are now able to apparently study quite a lot of the internal workings of the cathedral that they had never been able to get to because it was part of the construction. Ah. It was walled up or, you know, it was, you can't say, cut this timber out. I want to run some tests on it. It's holding the roof up. Yeah. But now so much of it has collapsed or been exposed. They've it got wasn't samples there. everywhere. Right. So now immediately after the fire was put out, a bunch of scientists got together and formed the Association of Scientists in Service of the Restoration of Notre Dame of Paris, which the official name is in French and I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. <laughs> but their spokesman, Olivier de Chalice, is sort of going out there and explaining, look, what we're doing is super necessary. Mm -hmm. It's also really important for future rebuilding efforts because there's information trapped in here that we need to know about before we can say we trust these columns that have been fire damaged if we can put weight on them again. Yeah. So the actual Notre Dame Cathedral, the construction began in 1163 and took about 200 years. And then in the 19th century, they did some repairs. And so there's not a lot of documentation about the repairs either. So one of the things they're doing is trying to separate out what happened in the 1100s and what happened in the 1800s. But what they do know is that the majority of it took place in the 1100s, and they routinely lifted 220-pound blocks of stone 200 feet in the air without modern technology. And they still don't know how they did that. Bullies and lovers? One would assume. I mean, they're not saying it's impossible, but they're saying we're not. We don't know. There's no records about how they built this thing. We just know they did. So the article goes through a bunch of different fields Mm -hmm. and how each of these fields is sort of benefiting. So there's an archaeologist named Le Heriter, and he's studying the iron rods that were integrated into the stone and wood structures. 
because you can carbon date those mm-hmm. and you can determine did they come from the 1100s or the 1800s. And also the surface of the iron acts as a thermometer. There are changes to the chemical surface of the iron based on how hot it got during the oh. fire. And that will give them information about how hot the surrounding stone got and whether it can then withstand, be, withstand any... more mm. if, they, if they need to replace these stones, even though they look fine, they may have been compromised internally. Mm. And so there's one guy studying all the iron. There's somebody who's studying the lead, a geochemist named Sophie Ayralt. She is getting samples of the lead because, unfortunately, a lot of the cathedral was built with lead. Yeah. And when it burned, a lot of that lead was aerosolized and spread out in the city around. And actually, there's a lot of schools sort of in that neighborhood where they've had to totally relocate. They've said, we've tested just the air and everything else. There's way too much lead. It's not safe. You just can't be around here. And so that cleanup effort is ongoing. But also, she is trying to get a sample of the lead in particular from the church because she wants to study farther out in the city. How far did this spread? Mm-hmm. Is there a layer of lead sediment now in the Seine River? Yeah. You know, and so that's sort of her angle on it. Meanwhile, there's someone named Alexa Dufresne who's looking at the tree rings inside the burnt timbers that were holding it up because they sort of know where these logs were harvested. Mm-hmm. And to look at the tree rings is going to tell them about this history of the climate yeah. in that area. Yeah. You know, where, where were the drought years? It also, I think they said, is going to give us some clues about climate change, mm-hmm. talking about previous warming and cooling sections of history, because there's something called the medieval warm period, which was between 800 and 1200 CE. And that is when all of these trees were grown and harvested. And it is frequently used as sort of a counterpoint to climate change, Mm. where they're saying, oh, look, sometimes we get warm, sometimes we get cold. And of course, there is a lot of evidence that the medieval warm period, first of all, it was localized. It was only in this one area. Other parts of the world were cooling. It was really more redistribution of the heat on the planet as a whole. Mm -hmm. Whereas right now, what we've got is uniform. Widespread. Yeah. Yeah. And but they said, you know, the more we know about the warm period, it will tell us about how things survived or didn't during that period in that specific area. So they said, this is actually a really critical time that we wish we had more evidence from. And now we do. And these timbers never would have been exposed. Right. Except for the fact that the church burned. And so now they've got access to this uh, historical record through the trees, which is really cool. Yeah. Tragedy begets information to deal with tragedy. That's right. You got to have some something to come out of it. <laughs> the circle of tragedy continues. That's right. But Set them all on fire. Let's that's right. <laughs> burn them all down. See what happens. <laughs> all right. Next link. Next, next link. link. Um, I apologize. Apparently, all of the articles I wanted to talk about had animals in them this I week. Don't apologize for that. <laughs> that makes this a great day. That's right. I love animals. Even though a lot of the articles that I've chosen kind of are, at least this one is somewhat horrific so (laughs) so you know we've talked about animals and beauty regimes we've talked about fritz the cat we're going to now talk about insect jewelry of the victorian era this is by amelia south at jstor daily but basically in the late 19th century exoskeletons were super hot all the rage oh so these are like the actual bug is just hanging off of you oh man were they ever in 1863 godey's ladybook which was essentially an american women's fashion magazine out of philadelphia reported that quote the ornithological and entomological fevers which broke out last spring will continue with increased violence throughout the winter so you know like (laughs) high hems are here to stay for next season and it's not going away bugs are still in 
1891, a Mrs. De Jones debuted a fabulous piece of living jewelry. She strapped a diamond to the back of a live beetle and trained it to fly around her <gasps> neck, tracing the shape of a necklace. What? Totally insane. So was it like leashed? Like how do you keep it? You can't train a beetle. I don't know if it was trained. My <laughs> guess is it was probably somehow tethered with right. jewelry and was trying to valiantly escape towards its God-given freedom. But instead... <laughs> with this heavy diamond attached to it. <laughs> exactly. But instead was destined to a life of ornamental servitude upon this lady's dainty neck. And it's just crawling around oh. her neck. Like that oh. seems... That's very goth. Like, I think that's very edgy. The Victorians were super goth. I don't think we give them enough credit for that. I mean, you know, part of it was in Victorian era, a lot of people were going into urban areas and getting increasingly into sort of like the the steampunk thing. Huge advances in Mm -hmm. science, technology. And so as they grew more and more detached from nature, there was kind of a balance in their culture to try to reconstruct wilderness in their own homes. So they did things like cultivating ferns under crystal domes raising frogs in glass vivaria, trimming their hats with piles of moss and bird's nest. It was a very, like, bring the nature back to where we are so we don't get too far away from it. Right. right? You want to sort, But at the same time, you want to incorporate it in, like, a very sterile, I'm going to look at this through the glass, oh, but yeah. I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and part of that, too, was taxidermy, which was considered a delightful domestic <laughs> hobby during those times. Like, not just displaying them, but actually stuffing them yourself? Oh, yeah. Victorian ladies <gasps> learned to gut dead animals, douse their corpses with arsenic, and arrange them in lifelike poses for the amusement of visitors. Whoa. Yeah. So, I mean, they would do things like deck themselves out in brooches made of hummingbird heads, which I can guarantee you can find on Etsy to this day. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, this is practically connected to the beauty regimen as well. (laughs) Like, if you're going to, you know, kill the white pigeon so you can use its body for your beauty, don't throw out the head. That's wasteful. But instead of, like, instead of absorbing it alchemically and having that enhance your beauty, it was more sort of there's beauty inherent in the natural world itself. Put it on display in all of its natural glory. It got crazy. Some ladies would even go a little further. They would dot their hairdos with flickering fireflies, which I have to admit is a really lovely image. It is. Again, I want to know how you keep them in there. I mean, are you just tying a tiny thread around their little thorax and like pinning them into your hair? It may have been that they just sort of like hair helmeted kind of like wigs or hair nets possibly. Oh, so they're like trapped in in the hair Mm -hmm. and they can't get out, but your head is glowing. Totally. None of this is humane whatsoever (laughs) at all. Eventually, you know, I'm sure as it's difficult to deal with actual live creatures sure. and the acquisition and care, quote unquote, of having to deal with them, they would start using faux insects made of gold and silver that were set en tremblant, which is French for, you know, trembling. So they would have springs under the wings to oh, give so they'd the wiggle. illusion. Exactly. And you, can, I've seen costume jewelry to this day that mm-hmm. has that kind of effect to it. And the idea was to make it look as realistic as possible because at one point, people were actually wearing live beetles. Right. This was the step down. was to Exactly. exactly. <laughs> but at least you can, you know, it's an heirloom. You can pass that one down sure. to generations. That's right. You don't have to go collect a new beetle every time you go to a party. Totally. Totally. There's a really nice piece at the end of this article, too, that likens this sort of thing to sugar, ivory, and chocolate. These beetles were spoils of the empire. They often came from... They're exotic, right? Exactly, yeah. The demand for insect jewelry really pushed a lot of the most beautiful species to the brink of extinction. And of course, the industry was built on the backs of enslaved laborers. Of course. Like you do. One Englishwoman visiting Brazil noted with amazement that the air was full of flying creatures that she had previously only seen on earrings and brooches. (laughs) 
So it was more sort of like, I can't believe it. The whole thing is full of jewelry. They're but flying in the air. That's nature. Well, and you like we're creeped out by the idea of like, oh, it's a bug crawling on me. But at the time, it was actually pretty common for people to have lice and there to be bed bugs in the house. And there's rats going in and out. And everyone's like, yeah, they're like squirrels. They're just around. I can see how maybe it wouldn't be as creepy. It's like, yeah, we've all got bugs on us. But my bug is pretty. I mean, like, and some of them are. You've seen. Oh, they really are beautiful. Like, yeah, the, you know, they've got this gorgeous green, yellow chartreuse sheen. Some mm-hmm. turquoise. See, now I imagine Lady Gaga would absolutely, <laughs> if like I, I think Peter would get involved. Like I don't think you could get away with it because of the torture of the animal aspect of it. Yeah. I could definitely see her wearing a live beetle necklace, yeah. though. You know, it, it kind of brings to mind Bjork as well. Like, oh, yeah. She basically digitized all of these kinds of things, but certainly pulls inspiration from the natural world mm-hmm. she's just smart enough to use ai and vr yeah. to do it right? well she had that swan dress from way back when and that's right. all she needs is a real swan <laughs> <laughs> i like the way she did it better Gotta no be probably yeah, yeah probably better <laughs> next link next, next link. link they're not really that popular anymore but there used to be this whole spate of fraternal organizations like the moose lodge and the elk lodge mm. like you've heard of all of these So apparently during the, quote, golden age of fraternalism, which was from the 1910s to the 1920s, up to 40 percent of the American population was a member of some organization, which, given that the vast majority of these were men only, means almost 100 percent of men belonged to one of these organizations in the early 1900s. So this article from Messy Nessie Chic is cataloging the history of one particular organization called the Order of the Oddfellows. They don't actually know how old it is. What they know is that in 1748, they have sort of a a minutes log from Lodge Number 9. So at that point, there were already eight lodges stationed around All of Oddfellows. All of Oddfellows. And there's sort of a, a debate about why they were the Oddfellows. There's one theory that says... It was odd at the time of industrialization to think about charity and have this social Uh mindset at all. So they were odd in thinking that they should do these sort of service acts, which is what most of these fraternal organizations are. There's some networking. There's some social benefits to the people who are in them. But often they are service organizations Mm -hmm. that go out and build a house for somebody or things like that. So that was one theory that it was odd to consider acts of charity at all at the time. And the other one is that a lot of these fraternal organizations also did double duty as trade unions. And so if you belonged to a trade that didn't necessarily have a lot of members, Mm -hmm. you know, there's only so many boat polishers (laughs) in the world (laughs) that the odd fellows was people who did odd jobs that didn't have enough to band together on their own. But they all sort of kind of came together. And true enough, the American leg that was founded in 1806 was founded by three boat makers, a comedian and a vocalist. Love it. These are the jacks of all trades. That's right. And so that, I think, is probably, to my mind, the more likely origin. But again, they don't know because this thing, it's just been around since forever. And like a lot of fraternal organizations, they have a lot of these weird secrecy rites. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you get inaugurated into the club... There's actual skeletons that they use, and they are still going today, and they got in trouble for having these bones. And ultimately, they determined that the bones were so old, they couldn't determine their provenance, and so it wasn't, you know, I mean, they just couldn't. It's not a cold case to reopen. Right. <laughs> but it was apparently, of all the fraternal organizations, the Odd Fellows was actually one of the more effective and better ones. At one point, they were bigger than the Freemasons. In the 1920s, they had 2.7 million members. (gasps) I mean, this is in 1920s. The population of America was a lot lower. They had, you know, outposts all across. And they were one of the first, if not the only one, that was open to all races. 
they had a branch of women. They started allowing women in. And Eleanor Roosevelt would later become a member of their. Yeah. They called the women branch. It was still sort of separate, but it was called the Daughters of Rebecca. And they kind of did their own thing, but they were always very inclusive. And they said, we're here to do good works. Why would we be intolerant while we're trying to do good works for people who are downtrodden? (laughs) And they've had a couple of schisms over the years. You know, when uh, the American Mm. Revolution happened, the American branch and the British branch sort of had a hard split. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Civil War caused a split where like a little group kind of went off and said, no, we want to be whites only. And then they kind of died out in the open intolerant one is the one that still survives today. Mm -hmm. And they do survive today. They have 600,000 members in the U.S. One of the reasons that they collapsed, unfortunately, and are slowly kind of coming back, was in the 1920s, of course, they were very big. But part of membership in these things is you pay dues. And then that money goes towards whatever charitable efforts they're working on at the time. But when the Depression hit, Mm. nobody could afford the dues anymore. And then even as they might have started to come back, Roosevelt brought out the New Deal. And all of a sudden, the government was providing a lot of the resources that these charitable organizations had had to provide in the past. Mm -hmm. There didn't used to be a way to take care of old people. That's what these fraternal organizations did. And once the government took it over, they're like, well, there's kind of no need for us anymore. Like, you've taken our gig. And I do think it's probably better to have it spread to everybody rather than just this organization that gets to pick and choose who they help. Which is what churches do now. Right, exactly. There is definitely still a role for that in our current society. But they said, you know, people didn't see a need for us anymore at the very least. And so they didn't belong anymore to these organizations. And the golden age of fraternalism just crashed around the Depression. But they do still exist. And they're around their chief symbol is a three-linked chain for friendship, love, and truth. And they seem to be just kind of a legit nice organization. They're just lying in wait for all of these terrible rollbacks on Social Security and Medicare to happen. So as like we continue to strip away the legacy of the New Deal. That's right. They're ready to keep us uh, us afloat. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. There are a lot of great articles that we did not get to. Some of the ones still out there on DamnInteresting.com. The Baron of Botox is gone, but his face lives on. (laughs) An excess of immune cells found in the brains of people with autism. And why Dutch officials want you to forget the country of Holland. Take a look at those. Take a look at some of the ones we've talked about today. We are listener and donor supported. We would love it if you would visit our Patreon at Damn Interesting Week. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.